you've got children who'd like to go take part in our children's ministry, um, they can go right out this back door. There'll be somebody there to walk with them to the classroom. I think Asher's going to be back there to go with them and take them back there. So just kind of walk right out those back doors there and out to their room. I'm really excited about our children's ministry. They've... Um, uh, they actually have a meeting today, actually. that So there is a meeting uh, for children's ministry meeting directly afterwards. So if you're involved in children's ministry, if maybe this doesn't happen to be your week, um, uh, they have a meeting just right afterwards, just going over the stuff for the next month. It'll be a short meeting with Bethany, and it'll be in the room right off to the left out here. So, oh, no. Oh, sorry. It's in the children's ministry room. Sorry about that. Okay. So... Um, Anyway, with that said, good morning, and uh, it, I just want to tell you, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier a little bit, but it is, it is one of the great honors of my life to be your pastor. It really is, um, and, and I am just, I'm just thrilled to be able to be here and proclaim the Word of God to you today and every week that I get to do that, and so um, we have a lot of ground to cover today, though, and so we're going to dive right in. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. Um, I initially planned on us being in eight verses today um, from, from verse uh, 10 through 18. Uh, however, as I got started preparing, I got through about verse 10 and realized, well, that could be its own sermon <laughs> just on that one verse. So we're actually only going to cover the first four verses. So we're actually going to be in verse 10 through 13, actually 10 through 13, sorry, 10 through 13. And the next week we'll finish out with verses 14 through 18 in this section because it is uh, such a just deeply theological section of Scripture, and there is a lot to cover. Um, but as I said, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, if you'll recall, last week, if you were here and if you weren't, then I would encourage you to go uh, listen to the podcast and kind of catch up with where we're at in Hebrews. Um, verse 9 is where we ended last week of chapter 2. I just want to read that to you so you know kind of where we ended. So we ended with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so we ended last week's, this last section of, of the scripture, we ended uh, understanding that Jesus tasted death for everyone. This was a death that was substitutionary in nature, meaning that Jesus died a death in place of someone else. He died in the place of sinners, taking the wrath of God we deserved upon himself and giving us or imputing to us his righteousness, his right standing before God put onto us. Now this Jesus whom we've seen in Hebrews as described or named as or described as the heir of all things and we've seen him described as the radiance of the glory of God in chapter 1. But he's also been identified as the Son of God. Now, Christians today are used to thinking of Jesus as a humble teacher roaming the ancient world with his followers. But one author that I read made the point that we rarely think of Jesus as he lives now and is described in verse 9, crowned with glory and honor. He reigns, and he reigns in power. We get to share that in someday, excuse me, in, someday we get to share in that glorious truth. We get to share in that honor. That is an amazing truth. 
So the author of Hebrews, after laying this out there, that this Jesus, who is greater than the angels, tasted death for us, and then he, what he does is he puts before us this beautiful passage that we find in verses 10 through 18, this morning, 10 through 13, we're going to read the whole thing, um, of chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible or whatever you look up scripture on, follow along as I read. We're going to be Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand it and apply it to our lives. Lord God, as we come to your word, we just pray that you would help our hearts understand And help us know what to do with it in our lives. Change us because we understand the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and help us understand. Let this be about you and for you, Jesus. Not about me, not about anyone else, but about you, Jesus. May you be glorified and lifted high. May I truly decrease and you increase. Be big, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. So I titled this message, or this pair of messages now, The Ministries of Jesus. So this is part one, okay, part one. But the first aspect of the ministry of Jesus that we see in verse 10 is the saving ministry of Jesus, the saving ministry of Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus came to save humans from their sin and deliver them to the Father. So right away, Right away, we see in this verse, we see the Trinitarian nature of Christianity. When we look at verse 10, when, when you're looking, so here's, here's a little tip for you, okay? This one's free, okay? Uh, when you're looking at a passage, and it has as many pronouns in it as this one does, or any amount of them, actually, it's a good practice to go through and figure out who they are describing, right? Who they are addressed to. This first one in verse 10, when it says, he for whom and by whom all things exist, is talking about God the Father. So there it's talking about God the Father. But when it goes on to talk about the founder of their salvation, it's talking about Jesus. So we see that all along in Scripture, we see that, our, that Christianity deals with the three-in-one trinity. Christianity is Trinitarian in nature. Three persons but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all have acted in our salvation. And there is no division in them because they act together in perfect unity. Uh, One God, three persons, one God. It's the Godhead, the Trinity. 
But as we look at the first aspect of Jesus' ministry from this passage, I want to read verse 10 one more time. And I want you to pay attention to something. I want you to listen to the beauty of the language, because sometimes I feel like we just read the Bible and we read it, and okay, I read my Bible. But I want you to like, pay attention to the beauty of the language here. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That phrase, in bringing many sons to glory, that is a beautiful summary of the gospel. It incorporates the relational and the familial aspects of the gospel, and it summarizes the work of Jesus in bringing many sons to glory. Now, there, there are many things that Jesus did in the incarnation, in his death and resurrection, right? But this gets to the aim of it. When the author writes many sons, he's identifying those who belong to God as sons. That is, to show the family relationship with those who are saved by God, who are brought into the family of God. Jesus is delivering these many sons to glory. He's delivering them, us, to the Father to make it so they make it to eternity with God. He's delivering many sons to glory. But then it, it talks of Jesus as the founder. Specifically, if you're taking notes, the founder that was made perfect through suffering. Now, we're going to break this down because that, that phrase can cause some questions in our mind. But Jesus is referred to in verse 10 as the founder of our salvation. Now, uh, you may have another translation of the Bible rather than the, I use the ESV when I preach uh, primarily. Um, your translation might say the pioneer or the captain. Um, the translation of it can be forerunner. He's, the idea is he's gone ahead. He's the founder of our salvation. He's the first, the pioneer, the captain, the guy at the head of the line. As F.F. F. Bruce writes this, he is the Savior who blazed the trail of salvation along which alone God's many sons could be brought to glory. Man, created by God for his glory, was prevented by sin from attaining that glory until the Son of Man came and opened up by his death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As his people's representative and forerunner, he has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. So the whole time, Jesus has gone ahead of us. Now, this is in agreement with what Jesus himself told his disciples during his earthly ministry in John chapter 14, verses 2 through 5, or excuse me, 2 through 4. He said this, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and that, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So we see Jesus as the forerunner. He's going ahead. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. But later in verse 10, it says this phrase that maybe can cause us some pause. It says that he was made perfect through suffering. Now, what in the world does that mean? I can tell you first what it does not mean. 
okay? It does not mean that Jesus was anything less than perfect in his life here on earth. He did not have any sin. He was sinless. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews continually promotes the sinlessness of Jesus in the book. The phrase made perfect, as used here, refers to Jesus' uncompromising submission to the Father, even in the face of an increasing hardship of suffering and death. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in suffering and dying upon the cross, Jesus was perfectly fulfilling the office of Messiah. He was doing the things the Messiah had to do. He was the perfect sacrifice for the sin of man. And this was all in the plan of God the Father. And at the very beginning of verse 10, the very beginning, we see that this was all fitting. This was fitting. It says, for it was fitting... For it was fitting that Jesus would suffer and die to make atonement for us was fitting. It was appropriate. It was perfect. It was the appropriate thing in accordance with his glorious character. That's something that will help us understand so much more of the way God works. When we look at this and we say it was fitting, in other words, it was appropriate. It was appropriate for God's character that he should act in this way. See, God always acts in keeping with his character. Okay, if you're going to write something down, this would be a great thing to write down. I don't have a slide for it, but uh, it's this. He always acts in keeping with his character. He will never act in a way outside of who he is. God will never act in a way outside of who he is. So if something goes on and you're like, wow, God's doing something, and you're like, but that's outside of the character of who I know God is, or that doesn't agree with who, what Scripture says about God. God's plan in this respect, that Jesus would die, that it would happen in this way, was appropriate. It was fitting because it was in keeping with the character of God. There are a lot of people, and you will run into these people in the world today who have a real issue with the idea of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That means Jesus paying our penalty as a substitute to atone for our sin. That's the penal substitutionary atonement's the big theological term we use for it, okay? But a lot of people in the world have an issue with that. They think it's barbaric that an innocent man was slain on behalf of sinful men. And, and people who don't understand it have even referred to it as some form of cosmic child abuse. This, however, is not a proper understanding of what was going on at all. See, those who, who don't believe it, they can't reconcile what they see as a religion of blood and suffering with a God of love. But what they truly don't understand is just how deep and wide that love of God in Christ truly is. Sin had to be paid for in blood. And because God is true, holy, and just, a sacrifice had to be made. But because the love of God is so deep, he also provided the perfect satisfaction for that sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And it is through that sacrifice 
that Jesus brings many sons to glory. It's how we get to be a part of the family of God is through that fitting and appropriate and perfect sacrifice. And in being part of God's family, we see and understand that Jesus is the elder brother of every Christian. Everyone who is truly saved from their sins by the blood of Christ has Jesus himself as their elder brother. Now, there are uh, cults out there who will tell you that they will take this truth or a verse like this and they'll twist it and they'll twist it to try to uh, tell you that because Jesus is your brother, you're perfect and you never sin anymore. I've heard it. That's not, that's not true. Okay? That's not true. You'll still sin because you're not perfect this side of eternity. Okay? But Jesus, we find from Scripture, was as the founder of our salvation, our forerunner, and the elder brother of everyone who is in the family of God. Now, depending on what your elder brother was like, if you had an older brother in your physical family, this idea of having Jesus as your elder brother or older brother may not sound super attractive to you. I had a younger brother. I was the oldest. I know that it was, at times probably not a great joy to be my little brother based on things I did to my little brother. He was probably not thinking how awesome it was to be my little brother when I threw a telephone at him, okay? And he ended up having a cut on his lip, which he will still show you the scar and tell you about. Depending on how you grew up, that may not sound like a great thing. If you grew up with an older brother, you know that things can get a little competitive Or maybe you had an older brother who was just plain mean to you. But if that's the case, this truth of Jesus as our elder brother, it might might hit you in a little bit of a strange way, but please know, Jesus is the best of all elder brothers. He's the ultimate, the perfect older brother. Not one who is jealous of us or acts entitled, like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. I don't know if you remember or know this story. But there's an older brother in that story, and Jesus is the opposite of that guy. I don't know. I mean, do you know this story? Let me just recap a little bit. This is, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son in Luke uh, chapter 15. And I'm going to summarize a little bit of it for you. So there's this guy, this man. He's got two sons, and the younger son comes to the dad, and he says, uh, hey, give me all my inheritance right now. In other words, he's telling his dad, hey, I wish you were dead, right? Give me all the inheritance. Instead of waiting until you pass on, Give me all of your inheritance, or all of the inheritance that's my part now. So the dad gives him his part of the inheritance. And this little brother, he goes out and he squanders all his money on wild living. And one day, as he's longing to eat the stuff they're feeding the pigs, he decides to go home and pledge himself to his father as a servant, basically be a slave. So he comes back, and his dad sees him. His dad runs out to him, and his dad's so happy to have him back that he throws this big party to welcome the son back. But when we come to verses 25 through 32, we see the response of the older brother, because so far this sounds great. Man, he's welcome back, and everything's good. But then we get to the older brother. And here's what it says in Luke 15, 25 and following. Now this older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus is not like that older brother. Jesus is not that kind of older brother. In fact, he's the complete opposite. Jesus isn't upset that the father forgives the sinful child. Even more astounding, not only is he not upset that the father forgives the child, it is our older brother, Jesus himself, who doesn't wait in the field, but came down to the far-off country where we were sinning and living lives at war with God, and he brings us to glory. He brings us to the Father through his death and resurrection. The elder brother made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God and made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And friends, this is incredible news. This is incredible news because Jesus is the elder brother of those who've trusted in Christ. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because our older brother, he made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God. This is why Christians are really excited about adoption. Because we've been adopted. We've been adopted. If we trusted in Christ, we've been adopted in the family of God. The Bible talks about this idea of us being adopted into the family of God. Because of the saving work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we get to be adopted into God's family. The scriptures tell us that we were at enmity with God before knowing Christ. That even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He knows exactly who we are and everything we do down to our very nature at war with him and our sin, and yet he made a way for us to be adopted into God's family. I don't know who you were last at war with. In national and political terms, for the sake of illustration, let's use Adolf Hitler, all right? He was an enemy of, well, everybody, really the world, but when the war was over and a treaty was signed, we did not invite Adolf Hitler over for family dinner. We didn't call him our brother or our son. And yet the picture we have in the Bible is that we were enemies of God and living against his will and his way. And that sin that we had rightfully deserved to be judged and the wrath of God poured out upon it. But because he is not only holy and just, but also at the same time loving and merciful, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to earth, wrapped in human flesh, to live a perfect life in our place, life we couldn't live, to die a perfect sacrificial and substitutionary death that we could not and raise from the dead. And all those who believe in this good news and repent of their sins are gloriously, wonderfully, amazingly, adopted into the family of God. And this is good news. This is the good news. This is life-shaping. It's eternity-securing good news. Hugh Martin wrote this. We find sonship in him, for he is the son. The adopted sons have this privilege in the eternal son. To bring saved men into a filial relationship to God required a savior standing in that relationship himself. 
Hence, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son that we might obtain the adoption of sons. We get to be in the family of God. We get to be children of the creator of the universe. Co-heirs with Christ in the family of God. You may have heard it said somewhere, we're all children of God. No, we're not. Not everyone is a child of God. That's simply not true. Generally speaking, all human life as created by God is his, but not in the same familial way as those who are bought with the blood of Jesus. So no, not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone will spend eternity in heaven. There's a real place called hell, and those who have not believed the message of the gospel and repented of their sin will spend eternity there. This is a serious message. It's good news, but it is serious. See, Jesus became like us so we could become like him. He came to earth to bring us into glory, into the family of God. And our union with Christ transcends all other racial and cultural familial connections. You're not primarily, listen, you are not primarily, primarily your nationality, your ethnicity, your denomination, your economic status, or any other identifier the world uses. If you are in Christ, then that union with Christ and our unity with one another surpasses any of those other labels. As we continue to roll through this passage, you see in verse 11. See, I told you verse 10, I could go almost the whole time. We see in verse 11 that Jesus sanctifies his brothers. The sanctifying ministry of Jesus in verse 11. Many families, look, many families have specific family traits passed down. It might be physical appearance like eyes or the shape of your toes. Or maybe something non-physical like an attitude could be that your family has a trait of being really hardworking or maybe something bad like laziness. The Callisons have what my brother and I affectionately refer to, and I think Clay, my brother, coined the term. We have what he affectionately refers to as the Callison Shylock. It's our nose. The Callison Shylock. It's not good or bad, it's just there. But you can see it on my face, my brother's face, Kenan has it. And my grandma even had it. Being part of a family, though, means you exhibit some of the family traits, right? So what is the defining trait of God's family? It's holiness. It's holiness. The defining trait of God's family is holiness. Those who follow Jesus should be growing in holiness over the course of their life following Jesus. It begins when we come to know Jesus and trust the gospel and it ends when we die. And we call this process sanctification. Jesus does this work, excuse me, Jesus does this through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we press in and take part in sanctification by doing the things Christ's followers are called to do in Scripture. We study the Word of God. We pray. We worship. We give generously. We gather with the local church. We share the gospel with those around us. But Jesus has promised to sanctify. He's already bought our holiness before God. He's already imputed God's righteousness onto those who've trusted in him. And he will sanctify those who follow him. 
We're saved by grace through faith alone. You cannot improve your standing with God by doing these things. But as someone saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are supposed to be growing to be more like Jesus. And sanctification is the process by which this happens. Ephesians 1.4. You knew I would have a verse for this, didn't you? Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So often, we don't think of this. Many simply think of the part where you become a Christian, where you first hear the gospel and believe and trust Jesus, repent of your sins. But we know that there is a continual growth path, a growth curve, a growth plane in holiness for the true Christian. The Bible does not know of a Christianity that does not continue to deepen and grow. So the question that I want you to contemplate today is, is it your aspiration to grow in holiness? Francis Schaeffer once pointed out that the basic aspiration of people today, including many evangelical Christians, seems to be this, material affluence and enough personal peace to enjoy it. That's not the call of following Christ. It's not the call of following Christ. This is our calling. It's our calling. It's our destiny. It's our duty as believers in Christ. Having new life in Christ means that at our very core, we should be different. He gives us new attitudes, new aspirations, new motives, and new actions. And these things should be different and continually growing more and more different the longer that we follow Jesus. That doesn't mean that you won't, you won't sin, okay? That doesn't mean you won't stumble along the way. You will. But your attitudes, your aspirations, your motives, your actions are different. And they should be derived not from the world, but from our true family and older brother, the family traits. We should reflect the family traits of the, of the family of God. Our outside lives should reflect the spiritual truth that we have Jesus' righteousness credited to our account. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24 says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Take off the old self and put on the new self. There's a change that happens when we come to know Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, some of you had, some of you had radical testimonies like, I was a druggy and a criminal, and then I came to know Jesus, and I went completely the opposite way. Some of you grew up in church, and you trusted the gospel at some point in your life, and you believed, but you're like, you didn't have this radical, crazy, you know, I was in a Hell's Angel biker gang testimony, right? And that's okay, but there's a change even in our desires and what we want, our aspirations, our desire to seek after God, to, to know God in a deeper way, to live more according to the life that God says his followers are supposed to be living. We will go through trials and we will suffer. Trials grow us in our holiness 
and our pursuit of holiness and in our reliance on God. Trials are part of the sanctification process. It's like a master artist chiseling away everything on the block of wood that isn't the marvelous statue that he's creating. I read this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I think you'll find helpful. If God is your father, you must be special. You cannot help it. If the divine nature is in you and has entered into you through the Holy Spirit, you cannot be like anybody else. You must be different. And that is what we are told about the Christian everywhere in the Bible, that Christ dwells in his heart richly through his mighty power in the depths of his personality, teaching him his will. It is God who works in you both to will and to do. And in verse 11, we find that these brothers that Jesus, this, these sons that he delivers to glory, that he delivers to the Father, that he sanctifies, we find in verse 11 also that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. It's not just that Jesus is our elder brother. He's not ashamed to call those who are his brothers, those he died to save. He's not ashamed to look on those that he died for and that he is sanctifying even in our feels like we're being drug along sometimes, doesn't it? He's not ashamed to call us brothers even as he has sanctified us. To call them members of his family and co-heirs. He's not ashamed of that. Because what he did was fitting. And it's keeping with his character. Following this, though, we have three Old Testament references the author of Hebrews wanted to include, as he's wont to do, right? Uh, one quote is from Psalm 22, verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And the, the second and the third quotes here are from Isaiah 8, 17 through 18, which says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. See, the risen Christ invites those who have called on his name and trusted him for salvation to join in celebrating the completed, finished work of salvation. He invites us to worship God. Even in the, even the Old Testament gave glimpses that those who follow God are his children. The ultimate goal is not that we would simply make a profession of faith in Jesus, but that we would worship the Father as his sanctified sons and daughters. As Richard Phillips writes, Christ died and rose again, not merely to save us, but also to make us worshipers of his father. He didn't just die so we could say, yeah, I'm saved, great. But that we would be saved to something. Not just from something, but also to something. Saved to worship the father. To live godly lives. And to share that good news of that fitting sacrifice with the world. We see the fulfillment of Jesus making us worshipers of his Father. We see the fulfillment of that, of what uh, in, in that quote from Psalm 22, which says, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you, right? We see the fulfillment of this in our churches. 
When verse 12 concludes with the singing of God's praise, we see that fulfilled right here. This morning, in singing God's praise. Now, as we think on these points throughout the rest of our time together this morning, and as you go out throughout the week, I want to put before you a question or two, as I like to do. Um, Before I do that, I'm going to invite the musicians to come on back up onto the stage and prepare to do our final song. But, But I want to ask you a question. And I want you to think about this. You might want to write this down because you might want to think about this. Here's the question. Do you desire to grow in holiness? Do you desire to grow in your walk with the Lord? At the core of your being, are you truly desiring to follow Jesus? Maybe you've believed the gospel, but you were never discipled by anyone individually. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to seek that out. Maybe you started off strong, but you've let the cares of the world slip in and you've abandoned some of the chase for holiness. I want to implore you to repent and turn to Christ. If you're someone who's sitting there in that place and maybe you've realized that you need to grow even more in holiness, then the next question for you is this. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to surrender Are you willing to repent of your sin and believe that Jesus' death paid for that sin too? If you've been neglecting the growth, if you've been neglecting prayer and Bible study, Jesus died for that sin too. What are you willing to do? There's some very basic things you can do as a follower of Christ to take part in your sanctification. Oftentimes we don't do these things that I'm about to lay out. Oftentimes we don't do them And I have to believe that the reason we don't do them is because we don't really want to. We don't want to give up the time or the effort to see growth in our lives. We just want to see growth, right? Like, I want to snap my fingers and lose 120 pounds. It doesn't work. And like, we want to snap our fingers and we want to be closer to God without having to actually talk to God and worship God and study the Word. And that's not how it works. If you want to grow in holiness, you need to be in the Bible. It's the number one, the number one indicator of someone's spiritual maturity is their engagement in Scripture. So you need to be in the Bible. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. If you don't know how to do this, ask me, and I will help you. I promise you I'll help you. Or ask someone else who knows how. There's other people in the room who know how, and they will help you. I don't know of anyone who will tell you no, they're not going to help you try to study the Bible better. They may be not confident in their own ability, uh, but we can have full confidence in the Lord. They may not be confident in their own ability, but they will help you find someone who can help you. Maybe the three of you can do it together. So, be in the Word. Second is pray, talk to the Lord. Confess your sins and ask him to help you in your study of the word and applying it to your lives. Look to his word where he has already spoken to you. Beg of him to let your heart understand his word. Third is this, and it's a little strange to tell you this because you're sitting in front of me, uh, but regular church attendance and involvement in a local church is essential to your holiness journey. 
I know, ironic that the pastor, the guy who stands up here every week, would tell you he expects you to be here. <laughs> ironic. Actually, the Bible would expect you to be here, honestly. Um, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. Being a part of a local church is essential in your holiness journey. We need each other. It's designed that way. God designed it that way. Later in Hebrews, the author warns us not to neglect the gathering together of the saints. We'll get to that in in (laughs) several weeks, probably. But he warns us not to neglect the gathering together of the saints. It's that important that Holy Scripture warns us not to neglect it. So don't just attend church. Be involved in one another's lives outside of Sunday morning as well. This is an area that we need to grow in as a church. And I, for one, am going to be looking for more opportunities for you all in this, for us not just to continue to gather together and make this a priority, absolutely, but also to be involved in one another's lives outside because that is part of that sanctification process as well. Here's the challenge, though. I heard a pastor say this once, and it's just, it's just stuck with me for years. Do the things that grow your affections for Christ. Do the things that grow your affections for Christ. Look, there are things in our lives that help us love God more, right? Maybe there's a certain author that just the way he explains the scripture helps you love God more. Maybe there's certain music you listen to and it helps you love God more, okay? Look, there are things in our lives, I think we've got some freedom here. There are things in our lives that help us love God more. But there are also things that, though there are things that increase our affection for God, there's also things that steal our affection for God or don't help it grow. So what I'm advocating is that you do more and more of the things that grow your affections for Christ, and you stop doing the things that will deaden your affections for Christ. And it sounds so simple when you hear me say it, but it's hard to do. And you can't do it without God's help. But thankfully, Jesus tells us in the book of Hebrews that he sanctifies his followers. So reach out to him and follow him on your sanctification journey. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? Then we're going to sing a final song. As always, if the word of God has... uh, pricked your heart this morning or cut you and you need to deal with the Lord and you want to talk about that, you need some counsel, um, I'm available afterwards or during the week you can get a hold of me and we can schedule something that works for you. Um, This is, like this passage, it's deeply theological, but in that we see these truths that play out in our lives. And so my challenge to you is just, would you take the next step with the Lord? Whatever that is. It might be you need to start reading your Bible, okay? Uh, It might be that you need to whatever. Maybe the first thing in the morning that you do uh, is read the newspaper, although I don't know why you would read a physical paper anymore. Uh, But, I I mean, I do know why you would do that, sorry. But... uh, people don't do that a lot. Anyway, uh, so maybe the first thing is read the newspaper and maybe the thing you need to do because that sets you on a path of just being angry because you read the news. Uh, maybe the first thing you need to do to help build your affections for Christ is to instead read your Bible before the newspaper. Okay. Maybe your next step is I just need to commit to not skipping church. 
I, whatever that is, uh, would you just pray about that? Like, I, I've laid out what Scripture says about it. But would you just pray about whether or not you really desire uh, to be closer to the Lord? Would you, do you desire to do the things that build your affections and take away the things that don't build your affections for Christ? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for those who've gathered here, who've heard your word proclaimed. God, I pray that this morning and during this week, you remind us of these things, that as we go out, you would bore it deep into our hearts, that we would rise to the challenge and say, yes, I will surrender everything to you, Jesus. That God, I, I will trust that you died in my place for my sins and that you have promised to sanctify me, that your resurrection proved that you are God, Jesus, that the resurrection proved that God had accepted that sacrifice as sufficient. And therefore, I know that you will sanctify